Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving In. Hello, Louise. Hello. Hello, divers. Today we're going travelling and we're Ooh. off to Paris, oh, if only. I know, I know. Given Has it, it made yeah. you want to? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. It's, yeah, I really want to go somewhere. <laughs> I really want to go to Paris, mm. especially after reading all these books. So given that we can't go anywhere and we won't be for quite some time, we thought it might be fun to still go to Paris, but just... In our heads. Yes. So today we have quite a few books set in the City of Lights and we have a few things we've been diving into. Uh, We have a life hack and a writing tip. Mm -hmm. But first we're going to talk about a book we've just finished. So, Lou, what what have you just been reading? Well, the book I have just finished is My Best Friend's Murder by Perth based author Polly Phillips. Um, It's published by Simon and & Schuster, and I guess as a genre we could call it domestic noir, Ooh. and I can't take credit for that. Um, there's another author in Perth, Emily Paul, and that's her phrase, and I think it's perfect for this book. This is a very readable, relatable page-turner of a contemporary novel, and it's a basically, I think, about toxic friendships. Oh. Uh, and the author Polly very kindly dropped off this book on my doorstep and I picked it up and instead of doing a very long list of jobs on my day off (laughs) I lay down on the couch and I didn't put it down so I think that's that's a pretty good recommendation. The book is written in the first person voice of Beck. Um, She's an editorial assistant at a magazine called Flair and that's sort of a leading uh, women's magazine in London and compared to her best friend Izzy and also to her boyfriend, Ed, you get the sense that Beck isn't really quite hitting her career goals. And the whole story remains within the tight domestic circle of Beck, her boyfriend, Ed, um, her brother, Rob, Izzy, and Izzy's husband, Rich, and then a few extra little characters. But it centres on Beck's relationship with all of them. And we're meeting Beck at a time when she's probably starting to question some of those relationships. And so we kind of experience with her some emotional growth and her shifting perspectives on those friendships and particularly how she begins to view her friendship with Izzy through a different lens. So it's a good book for talking about female relationships and toxic friendships. Is it set in Perth? Set in London. No, it's set in London. London. Yeah. Okay. And for me in particular... You know, it really resonated with some of those light bulb moments that we have as young women. Mm. Uh, I do remember thinking with a couple of friendships, you know, have I been naive? You know, have I not realised kind of the play? Mm. Am I being taken advantage of? Or am I just misjudging the situation? And should I give the person the benefit of the doubt? Mm. And I think that's kind of quite particular to your late 20s and 30s. You know, that sort of, I suppose, when you're really growing up. And, of course, for every situation where there's a toxic behaviour. There's also the other side of the coin. You know, why did I tolerate that behaviour? But one of the things I really liked about this book is the author doesn't let any of the characters off the hook. So the book isn't divided into good people and bad people, heroes and villains. Pretty much everyone is flawed, which of course is is real life. Yeah. 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 Everyone has what I call a grass stain of a secret of one kind or another. And there is no easy resolution to this domestic scene. So I I really enjoyed it. As I said, it's a very quick read. And the back of the book, of course, and the title, My Best Friend's Murder, announces that Izzy is found broken and bloodied at the bottom of the stairs. So you know from the first two pages that there's been foul play. Wow. And the rest of the novel, you're working your way back to that point with Beck, 
you know, how did it come to... How did to, we get here? How did we oh, get wow. here? So I'm really hopeful that Polly Phillips is going to sit down and have a chat with me soon so we might explore a little bit more of the plot. I don't want to give anything else away because it's a very recent release, so we'll try not to give spoilers, but Polly might delve into the plot a little bit more deeply with me if we interview her and, and chat to her a bit later. Um, so that's My Best Friend's Murder by Polly Phillips, and that's published by Simon that and Schuster. That sounds fun. Yeah. yeah, that sounds really good. What about you? What have you just um, finished reading? Well, I thought I would talk about one that I've just read, which is French, because, mm. you know, we're in Paris. Perfect. So this was, it's called The Champagne War by Fiona McIntosh. Oh, yes. It was sent by Penguin, and I just loved it. I've not read any other books by her, but she's quite prolific, I think. She's written quite a lot of books, but this was really good and really well researched, I think. So I'll just read a little bit off the back just to give a flavour of what it's about. So it says, In the summer of 1914, vigneron Jerome Mayer heads off to war. Certain he'll be home by Christmas. His new bride, Sophie, a fifth-generation and rebellious Champenoise, is determined to ensure the forthcoming vintages will be testament to their love and the power of the people of Epernay, especially its strong women. But as the years drag on, authorities advise that Jerome is missing, considered dead. Mm. When poison gas is first used in Belgium by the Germans, British chemist Charles Nash jumps to enlist. After he is injured, he is brought to Reims, where Sophie has helped to set up an underground hospital to care for the wounded. In the dark, ancient champagne cellars, their stirring emotions take them both by surprise. While Sophie battles to keep her vineyard going through the bombings, a critical sugar shortage forces her to strike a dangerous bargain with an untrustworthy acquaintance. Mm. But nothing will test her courage more than the news that filters through to her about the fate of her heroic Jerome. So it's a real page turner. Mm. It's just wonderfully French. It just it's just dripping with everything French and French wine and French champagne. She's a French champagne maker. There's no sugar in France because ah, of, yes. there are no boats mm. to transport it. And she doesn't know whether her husband is alive or dead. Mm. He's been, he's missing. And you just keep turning the pages wondering if he is alive and if he is, what is she going to mm. do? I just could not put it down. It was particularly visual. I think I really loved the way you could just picture these underground champagne cellars that had all been converted caves, into a hospital. Yes. And having seen a few of those... I could really picture exactly what that was like. So Very clever, really, because they'd be quite fortified. Those. And cool. Yes. Um, and safe. Mm. Um, yeah. So I I loved it. I thought it was really good. Yeah. Now, Gus has just finished that as well, and I'm, it's on my TBR, so mm. I'm really looking forward to reading it. Yeah, really good. So we're off to Paris. Mm. So did you want to kick off with your first Paris book? Yes. So I have read The Paris Affair by Pip Drysdale, um, some... Listeners may know her as the author of The Sunday Girl and The Strangers We Know. And this was published this year in February. So, again, it's a very recent release, also by Simon & Schuster. And, again, this is a very enjoyable modern whodunit set in Paris. Oh. I'm just going to read the back cover because this will give you very much a flavour of the book. No matter what Audrey Hepburn might have said about the city of love, it turns out that Paris is not always a good idea. Meet Harper Brown. Occupation, art and culture writer. Dream job, hard-hitting news reporter. Location, Paris. Loves, true crime podcasts. Ooh. Art galleries, coffee and whiskey. Does not love, fake people, toxic positivity. Favourite book, 1984. Special skills, breaking out of car boots, picking locks and escaping relationships. Superpower, she can lose any guy in three minutes flat. Ask her how. Secret, she's hot on the trail of a murderer and the scoop of a lifetime. That's if the killer doesn't catch her first. Oh, that sounds so good. Yeah, so again, a real sort of page turner. Harper is pretty sassy. She, you know, she's ambitious. She's recently left her best friend Camille in London behind and she's moved to Paris to work at the newspaper The Paris Observer. And one of the selling points in getting this job was a freelance blog that she'd written in England after she broke up with her boyfriend of eight years. Her boyfriend had been a sort of a moderately successful musician 
And so she'd supported his ambitions at the expense of sort of any sense of herself and any sense of what she was going to do with her life. And she toured with him all over Europe. And then on the verge of real commercial success, he, of course, dumps her. So I'm just going to read a little passage here. I hadn't written anything other than marketing copy in eight years. But as I typed out the first line, why I hate John Lennon, a light flicked on inside of me and I knew this was it. This was how I could make things right. Yes, I had given up my own dreams in favour of his, but I was only 28 and I could still become a writer. And so every night, that's what I did. I wrote. I wrote rave reviews about the music Harrison hated. I wrote about the art I now knew so much about thanks to his tours. I wrote about fitness trends, movies, intermittent fasting, music, sex, mascara, and I had a recurring micro-column inspired by my love of true crime podcasts called How Not to Get Murdered. Oh. Basically, I'd write about anything and everything as long as it added to my portfolio and took me one step closer to my dreams. So she's written this blog and, and that, of course, is an attraction to her new employer. So she's recruited as an arts and culture writer for the newspaper. You know, she's spent a lot of time in art galleries when she's been touring with Uh, her former boyfriend. She would really like to be a hard-hitting crime and news reporter, but that job is already taken at the Paris Observer by a reporter called Stan, who soon becomes her nemesis. And at the start of the book, we know that a young woman has been murdered in Paris, Matilda Beaumont. But of course, Stan is pursuing that story. And Harper is left to follow up an elusive artist, American artist, Noah X, who is about to open his new art exhibition. And Harper and Stan have this sort of exacting boss. She's a tough editor called Hyacinth. And Harper is very keen to impress her. So she's not adverse to sort of, let us say, as a young reporter, taking risks that she perhaps shouldn't take. And so Harper is very curious about this Matilda Beaumont. And, you know, as any young woman living in Paris would be. And she's astonished to find that in France, the prevailing view is everybody has a right to disappear. And this is a true fact. And police don't search for you unless you are a minor or unless there are clear sounds of foul play. And this is true today. There are usually around 1,000 unidentified bodies found in France each year. Wow. Yeah. And that's why, Virginia, France is the perfect place to commit a murder. Yes. So as the back cover suggests, and it will become as no surprise at all, the different Paris worlds that Harper and Stan are reporting on collide. Collide. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'm going to leave the plot there. Okay. There's quite a bit about of Paris in this book. There's a little of the rooftop sort of romance and vistas version of Paris. Yeah. But mostly it's the more modern, less rose-coloured glasses version you know, what it's like to work and live there rather than merely visit. So I'll just read this out as well. The Paris I used to visit with Harrison is not the same city I've lived in for the last five weeks. The former was all cobbled streets, picture-perfect cafes, neon signage, the sound of rain on tin roofs, the glittering lights of Eiffel Tower in the middle of the night on our way back to our hotel room from his shows. It was an untainted projection of Paris of my mind, a montage of movie scenes from our Amelie, The golden hues of Impressionism and that kissing photograph by Robert Doisneau. Yeah. And quotes like, Paris is always a good idea. (laughs) It was pretty poetic and romantic, but it was soulless, choreographed and two-dimensional compared to the Paris I live in now. There's a real grit to the real Paris I didn't see back then, an electric sort of madness that only opens itself to you once you've been here long enough to see beyond the varnish. Oh, It's really well written, actually. Yeah. It's a very well written book. It hooked me from the start. Apart from my obvious enjoyment of it as a murderino, I think she also writes really well about young relationships. And it's interesting, the word murderino is actually used in this book. And at the back, Pip Drysdale, um, there's a little, little note about the author and she credits the true crime podcast that you and I know, My Favourite Murder, where the phrase murderino was first coined. Yes, yes. yes. And she clearly is a fan of their podcasts oh. as well. So, look, it's a fun book. It, it really is a fun so book. Good. Yeah, and uh, you race around Paris with her. You know, that's how you're feeling, that you're sort of jumping from here and there with her. And that's the Paris Affair by I Pip I want to know what happens with that mean mm. journalist. I, mm. I really want to know now. <laughs> I think he's... He, mm. <laughs> um, I've got some theories there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What about you? Uh, So my first one is a complete 
different track altogether. There's a bit of a story behind the book that I chose to read, which is called, it's The Kill by Emile Zola. Mm, It's called La Curie in French. And the background to it is that about two years ago, I think, I decided to read the entire series Mm. called The Rouge on Macart Cycle, which is made up of 20 books written by Emile Zola. 20? I didn't realise it was 20. Yeah, from 1871 to 1893. And so I read the first book, The Fortune of the Rougeon, and then I never got any further because, you know, I'm so inundated with books. And life got in the way, Virginia. Just so many other new books come in and I'm always lured by the sight of a new book. But I still really want to read this because it's such a great series and Lots of people swear it's, you know, fabulous. They're beautiful editions you've got there, aren't they? They're so beautiful. They're the Oxford World Classics. They've got beautiful paintings on the cover and they're new translations. So I've I've got about four or five of the first four or five because that's how optimistic I was that I was going to get through this 20 series. And are the 20 readily available? Yes, they're all out now. I think Mm. think they're all out now. There was one to go and that's um, Dr Pascal, which is the last one has been translated and released. So when we decided on Paris for our theme, I was hunting through my bookshelves and then this just jumped into my hands. So so Zola is credited with being the first author to write a series of novels about one family. Mm. He's the first one. And, of course, many, many writers have copied him since. I think Balzac also wrote the human comedy around the same time, but he didn't interlink his books until after he had started, whereas Zola conceived the entire series from the beginning. So he plotted the whole thing out. Wow, the whole sort of saga. He plotted all 20 books Mm. and then proceeded to write them. So it's quite an amazing feat to think of an author deciding at the age of 30 to write a series of 20 books and then devoting the next quarter of a century to doing it. Incredible. Yeah. And the reason the Rougeon Macart cycle is such a fascinating series is that it spans 1851 to 1871. And that's the era called the Second Empire mm. under uh, Louis Napoleon or he was Napoleon III. He was uh, Napoleon Bonaparte's nephew. Yeah. And that era of the Second Empire was the period when Georges Eugène Haussmann mm. completely the streets of Paris. Paris. Wow. So the that's the whole period that Paris became the Paris that we know today. So it's it's kind of the most important yeah. period, really, in terms of modern Paris. So great swathes of Paris and streets and buildings and and homeless areas and hovels and poor areas were all pulled down to create the big grand boulevards that we have today. So these books are sort of a wonderful window into that period of great change in France and in particular Paris. So Zola was born in 1840. He grew up in Aix-en-Provence. Oh. Uh, he was a school friend of Paul Cézanne. Mm. And then he moved to Paris. He worked for Hachette in the sales department. Mm. He worked as a journalist. He was a playwright and novelist. And he moved in the same circles as Camille Pissarro Mm. and Edouard Manet. And it's just the most wonderful period to read about because we have so many of those beautiful Impressionist paintings to help us visualise the clothes and the homes and the gardens. And it's just the most rich, you know, beautiful period from an art point of view. So the first book in the series, The Fortune of the Rougeon, which is the one I read about two years ago, Mm. takes place in a fictional town and it's modelled partly on Aix-en-Provence. You know, there's a street modelled on the Cour Mirabeau, the Mm. big street with all the plain trees. Mm. Uh, So I had to go back and reread this time because I couldn't really remember it and it's quite complicated and I wanted it to be fresh because this book is foundational. And the family that Zola created starts with a woman called Adelaide and she has one legitimate son and then she's widowed and she's quite a simple soul and she suffers from epilepsy and she sort of lives on the margins in in this fictional town. And then after being widowed, she takes up with the town's sort of odd character and he's sort of a smuggler and a poacher and she has two more illegitimate children. So these are the three children, the sort of the legitimate side of the family and the illegitimate side of the family. And it's those three children that then form all the branches of these 20 books. And 
I think there's going to be a message there about the legitimate, yes. uh, more prosperous side and the yes. more grasping, illegitimate, uh, less socially accepted side. Yes. I think that's how it's going to pan out. And up. are they all written in the era in which? Yes. So he wrote them just after. Yes. So, but still very fresh in his memory, that sort of yes. 10 year decade. They were sort of written about the decade just before. Yes. So very fresh in his yes. memory. And the fortune of the Rouge on the first one covers the rise of Louis Napoleon up to his coup d'etat in 1848, mm. and then he became an emperor up until 1870. And he was the person who had the vision of reconstructing Paris, and he employed Baron Haussmann yeah. to carry that out. And so tens of thousands of workers were hired, huge tracts of Paris were reclaimed, lots of them were hovels, and then all the wide boulevards were built. And they were mainly built to allow the military easy access through the city, but the plan was also to improve the sanitation and the water supplies in the city. But presumably a lot of people were dispossessed as Lots well. Lots of people were dispossessed, yeah. mainly poor people. Yes, of, of course. course. Yeah. And were, you know, just pushed out of the city and mm. had to find accommodation elsewhere. And there were 11 communes annexed and the number of arrondissements were increased from 12 to 20. Yes. To make the city much larger. So for 20 years, basically, which is the period of these books, Paris was just one huge construction building site. site. Wow. Uh, hundreds of buildings were torn down and all the new buildings had to be built to the same height and style and in the same cream stone. And that's what makes Paris the beautiful city. I was going to say, we, we see it as such a beautiful city, yes, but at the time yes. it was probably... It caused a lot of heartache. Yeah. And also there was a lot of wheeling and dealing that yes. went on. There's a lot mm. of opportunities which I'll come to in a sec. Mm. So in The Kill, Zola tells the story of Aristide and he's one of the sons of the legitimate son. Yes. So this, we're on the legitimate side of the family in this one. And we follow his life in Paris and it focuses on his much younger second wife, Renée, and his eldest son, Maxime, from his first marriage. And Aristide is, is determined to become wealthy and he uses all the demolition in Paris and the construction work to make his fortune. He's desperate to become really, really wealthy. Mm. And as happens in the 21st century, there are lots of opportunities for dishonesty and corruption. And Aristide works out how to dishonestly buy up lots of property that's about to be compulsorily acquired, acquired. by the government and then grossly inflate the value so that then he gets massively overcompensated by the government mm. compensation board. I just find this sort of thing fascinating because, you know, 170 years ago, the same sort of things exactly. were being done by unscrupulous yeah. people. So in that way, this novel felt very modern to me. And these novels, I should say, we often think of classics as being a bit impenetrable or a bit difficult, a bit wordy. These are not, these are simple, easy to read yes. novels. There's nothing difficult yeah. about them. They're not cult classics because they're particularly highbrow. I mean, the writing is beautiful, but it's very accessible. And family and human behaviour doesn't change. Nothing changes. No. <laughs> Nothing no. changes. It's absolutely fascinating. He even at one stage um, buys property in another name and then he becomes the valuer <laughs> to go in and do a tour of the site and come up with the value for the property and he's actually valuing his own property. That's wow. how unscrupulous mm -hmm. he is. So he's sort of the classic narcissist. He has a sense of entitlement. He, he has all the sort of things that, that we see today. And I just love it when a novelist who didn't really have the benefit of much of our modern understanding no. of human psychology has so perfectly managed to portray the same sort of, you know, venal, manipulative characters that we would call narcissists yes. in, or worse in the 21st century. This guy's got a sense of entitlement. He thinks he can rob the government and taxpayers and get rich so he can satisfy his desire for this very ostentatious wealth. He has no empathy. He's contemptuous of others. He's manipulative. He's jealous. He's greedy. He's dishonest and self-interested. Wow, fantastic. All those things. And then there's a fascinating storyline as well within the family 
which I'm not going to mention because I don't want to go into spoilers. But I just loved it and I can't wait to read book three, which is called The Belly of Paris, Le Ventre de Paris. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> what so, a great little yeah, series. That was great. That was mm. fantastic. And um, are they translated by, is it sort of like a, you know, because often there's some notoriety in the translations themselves. I don't so know. These have been translated before and you're saying these are new, new translations well, now. Interestingly, these ones are by a guy called Brian Nelson. I haven't really investigated mm. him much, but I noticed that the new one that's come out of Dr Pascal, which is the final one, has been done by Julie Rose. Okay. So they've changed their translators. I'm not sure at what points so I'll have to... I haven't bought all of them yet. I think all the ones I've got are the Brian Nelson Because there's a whole community of translators as well. And it makes such a difference. Yeah, it really does. It makes the world yeah. difference. But these are great. Oh, They're fantastic. Really good, really. Yeah, excellent. And it just... If you've ever been to Paris or you've seen lots of pictures of Paris, this is the birth of, mm. of that Paris that we mm. know today. So mm. it's, a, it's a great series to read from that point of view. What about you, Lou? What was your other one? The other one I read is The Paris Library by Janet uh, Skeslian Charles. That's published by Two Roads, which is an imprint of Hachette, who kindly sent this to me. Thank you very much. The other two books I read were really enjoyable reads, but I really got lost in this one. Good lost? Yes, good lost. Good lost. Um, It's, you know, historical fiction, as you know, is not usually my thing, but this book is inspired by true events and in particular by some heroic people who lived in Paris in World War II. uh, And it's a very well-written book. So it's around the same period as your Champagne Wars book. Oh, okay. Yep. So, but mine's World War One. Oh, I beg your pardon. No, yes. This is World War Two. Yes, yeah. we've really covered the whole we thing have. here. We yeah. have. And the other major hook of this book is that much of the action takes place in and around a library. Love it. Uh, and of course, the book, as an overview, celebrates books and language. So it's it's a very special book. So diving straight in, we meet Odile Souchet. She's a young woman who lives with her parents and her twin brother Remy. Uh, in an apartment in Paris in 1939 and she is preparing for a job interview at the American Library in Paris, uh, a genuine institution which at this time was in the 8th arrondissement. I believe it's now moved and I must admit if I ever get the chance to return to Paris I will be going to see the American Library because it's I'm going to be going to all the places in these books (laughs) now. (laughs) Um, I have to say this book did send me scurrying to find out a lot more about this library and its benefactors. You know, I can't resist doing that. And for those of you who've listened to our podcast from the very beginning and you know in episode five I returned from a trip to New York and I was talking to Virginia about the New York Library, you will know why I'm going to read this passage. (laughs) This is Odile. My favourite part of library school had been the Dewey Decimal System. Conceived in 1873 by American librarian Melville Dewey, it took 10 classes to organise library books on shelves based on subject. There was a number for everything, allowing any reader to find any book in any library. For example, Maman took pride in, in 648, housekeeping. Papa wouldn't admit it, but he really did enjoy 785, chamber music. My twin brother was more of a 636.8 person. <laughs> while I preferred 636.7, cats and dogs respectively. Love that. And what's gorgeous about this is because she's been to library school and she's sort of memorised every category to within an inch of its life, all through the book the Dewey decimal numbers are peppered. So she might be talking to somebody oh. and they may, may mention something, you know, a pegs or, or she might see an object or there might be a discussion about an object and in her mind she immediately defaults to the Dewey Decimal I number. I love that. Um, which is fantastic. And, of course, every library, I hate to go into this conversation again, <laughs> but every library uses the Dewey Decimal system in its own way. So, for example, cats and dogs in a library in Ohio may be a different number to cats and dogs in a library in, you know, Germany, but still... It's, the principle It's the there. principle the and the system of the 10, yeah, is, is, is the same. So from the minute Odile steps into the library for her interview and it's no-brainer, she gets the job, we're introduced to this wonderful cast of characters and many of them are people that she already knows because she's 
a subscriber at the library herself. She spent a lot of time there and her aunt Caro has introduced her to the library many years before. And each of the characters um, have their own stories, their own reasons for being there, and in some cases their own secrets. But to all of them, the library is this wonderful community and sanctuary in Paris. And I'll just read one tiny more passage from this. Um, I loved Paris, a city with secrets. Like book covers, some leather, some cloth, each Parisian door led to an unexpected world. A courtyard could remain a knot of bicycles or a plump concierge armed with a broom. In the case of the library, the massive wooden door opened to a secret garden. Bordered by petunias on one side, lawn on the other, the white pebbled path led to the brick and stone mansion. I crossed the threshold beneath French and American flags fluttering side by side and hung my jacket on the rickety coat rack. Breathing in the best smell in the world, a melange of the mossy scent of musty books and crisp newspapers, I felt as if I'd come home. Oh, that makes me want to go. I know, I know, I know. So the directress, that's what they call her, the directress of the library is a Miss Reader, and she has quite a profile in Paris. She does lots of interviews. and Miss Reader. Miss Reader, with, with two E's. Oh, okay. And she's from Washington, D.C., where she used to work at the Library of Congress, and she is a great advertisement for the library she does interviews and she encourages everybody to attend and and she becomes something of a hero for Odile because obviously the inevitable happens it's 1939 the Nazis eventually arrive in Paris and they have to have make some very serious decisions about what they do with the library and its contents there's also a marvelous Russian character Boris he's worked his way up the ladder at the library and he eventually becomes the head librarian and as a young man he and his brother have fought in the Russian Revolution and they've come to Paris to escape the civil unrest in the, at their home and I, I'm barely scratching the surface here you know the author paints this very rich sort of tableau of vibrant and eccentric people uh, mostly expats who work at the library or visit the library and they're passionate about the power of books and it's that community that sort of inhabit this book and, and that Odile obviously is now part of. The book then switches, I have to say, a little bit unexpectedly, very early on to 1983. Uh-huh. And we are in rural Montana, USA, and we meet Lily, who's an only child living across the road from a rather reclusive neighbour, an older lady, Odile. Oh. And Odile has moved to Montana after the war has ended and Lily and the community in this rural town have not had a great deal to do with her. But Lily's mother becomes ill uh, and she starts to spend a lot of time with Odile. And Lily's a very intelligent young girl and she's naturally curious about Odile's past and that's sort of the dramatic tension in the book. We don't know how it is that Odile ended up in America and what happened to her in the war in Paris. Uh, and I'm not going to say any more about that. Um, and I, I literally have barely touched the surface with this book. The book switches between Montana in the 1980s and Paris in the 1940s. I have to say at times I did really just want to stay in Paris. Oh. And I did feel some of the uh, more mo modern chapters were a little bit surplus to requirements. But it was a kind of a cute device because... You know, the author was drawing parallels between a young Lily and a young Odile and the lessons that they both learn right. from life. So that's all I'm going to say about the, the, the actual storyline. I highly recommend this book. As an aside, the author, uh, Janet Skeslian Charles, went to work at this library as a, a program director in 2010 and she became aware of the women who had of the people right. who had worked there, and she wanted to honour them, essentially. Oh. Dorothy Reader, who is the name of the character in this book, was, in fact, the directress of the library during the war. And she came to Paris to the library in 1929 as a junior librarian, and then she worked her way up to the senior role. And in the book, the character is quoted as saying a phrase which Dorothy Reader actually did say, which is, the library is a bridge of books between cultures. No other thing possesses that mystical faculty to make people see other people's eyes. Um, and she became a very, very well-known woman, Dorothy Reader. And so it's on the record that Dorothy and her staff really went to Herculean efforts to get books 
to people during the war. They sort of took steps to protect some of the more serious and valuable editions and manuscripts. And they set up a soldier's service which shipped English language books to the Czech, English and French soldiers at the front. Oh, wow. And most heroically, the staff delivered books to people all over Paris who had been banned by the Nazis from attending the library in person. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And then in 1940, just before the fall of France, Dorothy Reed is also quoted as saying, more and more I realise my responsibility to guard our library. It stands as a symbol of freedom and understanding, of service to all, a fine piece of democracy. Mm. So it's a really, really fabulous story and I think a lot of people who are interested in that period, World War II, and who are passionate about books will really enjoy this yes, story. Yeah, sounds wonderful. Yeah. That's The Paris Library by Janet Skesley and Charles. Love it. That sounds great, Lou. What about you? What have you been... Uh, my other one is one that I've really just been dipping back into. Uh, it's a book that I had read some time ago, but it just called to me. It's called Lunch in Paris, A Love Story with Recipes by Elizabeth Bard. And Elizabeth Bard met her new love, I'll call him, Gwendol, through a work conference. And she was an American and he was from Saint-Malo, but he was living in Paris. And they met at a conference and got chatting and then they kept up communication. And then she moved from America to London and they arranged to meet in Paris and they had lunch and uh, he took her back to his tiny little, you know, pocket handkerchief apartment mm. where everything's stored, you know, in ingenious ways. And she's pretty much never, well, she did leave, but she sort of, their relationship continued on yes. there. And her opening sentence of the book is, I slept with my French husband halfway through our first date. Oh. I say halfway because we had finished lunch but had not yet ordered coffee. It turned out to be a decisive moment, more important for my future happiness than where I went to college or years with a good shrink. The question was posed lightly. It looked like rain. We could sit it out in a cafe or, since his apartment was not far, he could make tea. And she goes on to say that she was not in the habit of sleeping with people on the first date. But obviously there was some enormous chemistry there and uh, they developed a lovely romance. And the book charts her, their relationship and moving her moving to Paris. But the thing I really loved about it and the bit that I've really been dipping into is the recipes because at that first date at his apartment, he makes her a beautiful fresh mint tea mm. just with a bunch of mint and some loose gunpowder green oh. tea and, and pine nuts to serve. I mean, it's just divine. And then he opens the fridge to make them some supper and she looks in and sees nothing. Mm. So there was a carrot, half an onion, a bag with a bit of some lardons or some Mm. bacon or something. She couldn't tell what it was. And he then whipped it up into the most wonderful, delicious pasta that's the most beautiful thing she's ever eaten in her life. (laughs) And she can probably still taste it. Yeah. You know those recipes or those dishes that just stay with you? Yeah. Yeah. And he's he's, um, in the habit of doing that, just opening up the Mm. fridge and finding whatever. So she's she's got a recipe here for pasta a la Gwendol. And then he also had this incredible charlotte or apricot. So you would absolutely adore this book. I love this book. It's divine. And they're obviously still together. And As far as I know, I mean, I, I haven't Googled her to see where she's at now. And I kind of want to leave it. Yes, no, just leave it. How beautiful. Lunch in Paris. What an amazing name. And it's just such a beautiful cover and and it just sort of goes through their whole relationship. So it's delightful. How beautiful. Well, since you've mentioned food, I'm just going to quickly interject with my life hack for this week, Yes, uh, which isn't my life hack. It's actually the life hack of my eldest son, Zach, who is very fond of making a very rich plate of scrambled eggs. Okay. I mean, it's a bit of a go-to for any student, isn't it, scrambled eggs? Well, not me, but I'm I'm not an egg eater. You're not an egg eater. Yeah. (laughs) But everyone else in the world is. Yes. (laughs) And what he does is 
a complete no-no if you're on a diet. Okay. But it's, you know, when you're a strapping 22-year-old, yeah, yeah. you can probably afford to do this. So what he does is he actually melts some butter in the pan and then first, first uh-huh. yeah, in a hot pan, melts butter, sometimes a little bit too much butter. And if you, of course, have got your bowl with your eggs and you've whisked them ready to make your scrambled eggs, and he tips the, the melted butter into oh. the whisked scrambled eggs. Interesting. And then he puts, once he's whisked that in, and salt and pepper, he then puts those eggs back into the pan. Does that make them all oh, silky? Oh, my goodness. So is that, is it he doesn't silkiness? add water or milk or anything at all. He simply adds the milk. And, of course, it's got the, the buttercream probably oh in the butter. Goodness. The effect of putting that melted butter oh, yeah, into the imagine. eggs that have been whisked, it, it's, uh, it's sublime, uh, yeah, I can't oh, tell you. He's it so is, clever. It transforms your eggs. So oh, he probably got that from some obscure recipe book. So he's so he's probably watched yeah, yeah. Binging with Babish yeah, yeah. on YouTube. Well, that's a great and it's clue. I'm going to say it works. So if you're doing a special Sunday breakfast, maybe I should say, not everyday eggs. Yeah. It's very special. Fantastic. That's my life hack. Excellent. What else have you been diving into? So I haven't been diving into that much else and I've realised I've actually been very distracted by the New York Times puzzles mm. for the last few months. I don't know if you know them, but they're these fantastic puzzles and that they come out every day. Mm. So now, it used to be 4 o'clock in Perth. Now it's 3 o'clock. I think there's been a time change in New York. <laughs> and We're on summertime, aren't we? Yeah. It yes. moved, they obviously went back an hour. Yes. So, so, and there are people in New York who set their alarm and wake up in the middle of the night. To do them. To do oh, them. Fabulous. And there's a whole community of people who do them on Twitter. And there's a guy that publishes the clues once he's done the puzzle. So I know where to go if I'm getting stuck. So <laughs> the one I'm really stuck on is spelling bee. Yes. Which is this puzzle where there's a letter in the middle and then there's, and so there's seven letters and you've got to make as many words as oh, you can. I love that. And because it's all digitised, yes. it's incredibly satisfying because it's not like doing it on an old-fashioned newspaper where <laughs> you just don't know. It's brilliant. The only problem for me is that there's a lot of American words and American okay. spelling, so I miss yes, a lot. Okay. I have got better. But you can get to certain rankings. So I was, you know, getting to genius every day <laughs> and some days in, you know, 10 minutes or yes. something I'd get to genius. And I actually thought that was the end. And then I read on Twitter that there's actually Queen Bee, which is where you get all the extra words. She's not going to be outdone And by so then, of course, I then got completely, you know, had to get to Queen Bee every day. People like Steve Martin, the actor, yes. are absolutely addicted. He, If he ever gets to Queen Bee, he tweets about it. So is this the same one that's in the Australian, not the same one, but the one that's in the Australian where you're given a circle of letters Could and be. you have to it's get... It's a similar principle. Yes. This yes. is just, it's just done in such a oh, I'm clever way. Oh, i it's really good. But it's a bit of a time-sucking activity. So I'm trying to wean myself mm. off, but it's very hard at 3 o'clock to not go, oh, all the answers are out and the new puzzle. And you're a good deal fresher than the people in America yeah. who are getting up at 3 yeah. o'clock in the morning. So that's one thing I've been diving into, which I, I actually don't really recommend because it's <laughs> incredibly addictive. And then the other thing that I have been enjoying is a podcast that our friend Lindley recommended to me mm. called Duchess. Mm. And it's a podcast by the Duchess of Rutland. Have you seen that one, Yes. Luke? I've listened to nearly all of them now and she was a farmer's daughter who married and became in charge of a, a grand aristocratic house and she goes and interviews other women who've also done the same as her, married into a family where the husband has, has inherited because of primogeniture in, mm. in England and they've become the custodians of these enormous homes that are filled with history there's one in Schoon in Scotland uh, where Macbeth uh, oh. visited. There's one, you know, Queen Victoria went to stay for a night and they completely renovated the whole place and she only ended up staying for one night. Oh, All sorts terrible. of fascinating stories, so much history and a real reminder that although these homes look wonderful to live in, they're beautiful plush homes with beautiful furnishings and art. 
they're an incredible amount of work. Yes. Because it, they just suck up money yeah. and it's very hard to keep them going. Yeah. This isn't the podcast I was thinking oh, of. Okay. So this is very interesting. I'm going to have to yeah. investigate this. There's also the, all the issues of the death taxes as well, yeah. isn't there? So, yeah. I mean, for a long time there were lots of stories about families losing yeah. Yeah. a lot of these Yes, I don't know. into the National Trust. Yes, some have gone off to the National Trust. The ones that she interviews, I think, are all ones where they've kept it within the family with difficulty. Because they have to open up parts of it to the public, don't they? So their homes are not really their homes at all. And she tells a story because she interviews them all during COVID. And there's one lady that she interviews who says that her husband... She and her husband sat out on the terrace and had breakfast in the early part of COVID because there were no visitors and it was the first time in 64 years that he had sat outside and had breakfast on his own terrace without any visitors being on the grounds. It was just his own garden for the first time and I thought, oh, I don't think I would like that at all. As you say, we think of these homes as being this incredible privilege Mm. Which it is on one level because of the history uh, and everything else that goes with it. But also it's an enormous financial burden on the younger members of the family as well. They're just constantly trying to come up with ways to make it all pay. Relevant. And 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 the roofs are often a big problem or, you know, just they have to work on one room at a time. There's one lady talking about how she's got to spend 400 odd thousand pounds. She's got to save up over the next few years to come up with 400 odd thousand pounds to redo the silk room which was water damaged during a fire and you just think oh my goodness and these women are all amazing they're all very energetic Mm. and they all made me feel tired (laughs) (laughs) but so it is a really good podcast if you you know if you want a bit of escape is something completely different that one what about you Lou what have you been diving into well I have uh, just thought I might mention a book that I've only just started so I'm about a third of the way in but because it's also about Paris, I thought it would be a nice little book to mention. It's called The Strays of Paris by Jane Smiley, who many people will know because she's written a lot of books and she is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of A Thousand Acres. Now this The Strays of Paris is such a delightful book. It is the story of a racehorse, Paris, and a German shorthead pointer, uh, Frida, who become strays in Paris, stray animals in Paris. And they make lots of friends with other animals, one of whom is a gorgeous raven, Raoul, Raoul the raven, who early on in the book is watching them from a distance um, from his bolt hole. And it's just the most beautiful book about the friendship that these animals eventually uh, make with a, a human Uh, a young boy and his great-grandmother. It's just gorgeous. A beautiful book for adults, but also a beautiful book for older children. Yeah. It's just one of those books that I think, you know, a family might adopt and become part of the fabric of the family. Yeah, Yeah. it's a really, really beautiful um, book. She writes so well and it just immediately appealed to me. Yeah, it sounds Um, lovely. I bought it at the bookshop. I read the back of it and I just immediately thought, I have to read this book. So, yeah, just The Strays of Paris by Jane Smiley. It came out last year and, yeah, I can really recommend it. Now, don't you have a, I think you have a writing tip, I don't you? I do have a writing tip today. So I'm back with our book that we're really enjoying called How to Be an Author, The Business of Being a Writer in Australia by Georgia Richter and Deborah Hun. It's published by Fremantle Press. And I think many of these principles, of course, do not just apply to writing in Australia, they're universal, although there's probably some specific bits that I'm going to get to that will be peculiar to Australia, but this was a a bit that I thought was rather crucial because it's sort of getting back to the the black letter part of it, if you like. It's the dedication to the craft of writing. Mm. So we often think about the creative, imaginative side of writing, but this is on page 21, they say, at some point the writer must roll up their sleeves and commit. And then they have a quote. They say, author and illustrator Amberlynn Quay-Mulliner 
says, ideas are easy. They are everywhere. Many, many people have good ideas for books. Far fewer ever actually write Mm. one, which is so true. Mm. One of the important aspects of being a professional writer is understanding that inspiration is usually the smallest and easiest part of the writing. How true. Yeah. It's not the pursuit of some amazing idea, but about the work required to take an idea and shape it into a book. Inspiration is art, but writing an actual book requires dedication to craft. I suggest to aspiring writers that they spend less time focusing on ideas and start considering how to turn ideas into story. When they are reading books they love, start paying attention to all the tools the author uses to shape their ideas and convey them to the reader. Uh, and I just that that really is spoke just to me because superb. yes, yeah. the hard work, yeah, the, the actual slog of it. Mm. And they go on to say that chatted away a bit, and then they say, when you are setting out on a new work, you could find yourself asking some of the following questions. And I'll just pick a few here: uh, Do I use first person point of view, third person limited or omniscient, or multiple points of view? How will I handle narrative time? Is my work to be linear or circular in structure? Mm. Will I incorporate flashbacks? What genre will best convey my themes and plot? Should my research be channeled into fiction or non-fiction? Do I incorporate research into my manuscript as direct quotations? Or will I paraphrase, fragment Mm. or absorb the material in some other way? How do I translate my ideas into compelling characters and so on? So I really love that. I thought that there's so a lot more there. Very it? practical. And it's really about the actual craft mm. of putting the words on the page. Without and, the rose-coloured glasses. Yeah, on. Yeah. 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 So that's today's tip on Excellent. how to be an author. Excellent. Yeah. And do you have any book news, Lou? I do have book news. I thought it would be good for us to just flag the fact that we are in prize season. Yes, um, So the first prize I should mention is the Very Lucrative Women's Prize for Fiction, which is the UK prize, and they have announced mid-March, I think, their long list. They they have quite a big long list. There's 16 titles in their long list, uh, and they have a few books in there that we know. The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett is in there and Transcendent Kingdom by Yag Gassi, and there's Susanna Clarke's book, Piranesi's there. I mean, there's lots, and you particularly, Virginia, will be very familiar, I think, with a lot of this list. And their shortlist, it's actually, it's their prize cycle is quite long, which is good for so many books. Their shortlist will be announced on the 28th of April, and then they don't announce their winner till July. Right. So it's quite a long um, cycle. But it's going to be very exciting to see what mm, happens there. We, yeah. we might have a prize episode. Yes, we might feature yes. some winners. Yeah. And then here in Australia, we also have the Stella Prize for female and non-binary writers of all genres, not just fiction. The long list was announced on the 4th of March, and that included 12 books. And the short list very recently on the 25th of March for the remaining six books in the field. Uh, It's quite a short cycle compared to the Women's Prize. Uh, The Stella Prize winner will be announced shortly on the 22nd of April. And there's a West Australian author in the final six in contention. That's Rebecca Giggs for her book Fathoms, The World in the Whale, which I have here and I'm very much looking forward to reading. And we might have uh, an episode featuring that and some of the other uh, books in the shortlist as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. So keep an eye out, folks, for recent prizes. Great. Well, that's it for our trip to Gay Paris. Let's hope that we can actually go there sometime in the next few years. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll be back again soon uh, with a new theme and uh, we hope you're well and we'll see you soon. See you soon. Bye. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes and we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in.